Well, last week, we saw what happens when Jesus goes home, when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth after being away for a time, ministering in Galilee. And uh, despite the many signs and wonders and wisdom of Jesus' teaching, we saw that the people of Nazareth refuse to believe in Jesus. They reject him. This is, of course, exactly what Isaiah prophesied would happen when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 53 says this, For he shall grow up before the Lord as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." Uh, Contrary to the picture Bibles, Jesus did not walk around with a halo around his head or a divine glow radiating from his skin. The glory that Jesus had from all eternity with the Father was something hidden and concealed in the incarnation. There was no, as Isaiah says, outward form or beauty or comeliness that made people attracted to Jesus. He was not attractive in this earthly sense. Uh, John 1.11 says likewise that he came unto his own, unto his very own people, and his own received him not. So Jesus is suffering rejection from those who should be closest and kindest to him, his family, his brothers and sisters, his friends who go way back with him. Yet, they do not understand who this Jesus of Nazareth actually is. They think that just because they know Jesus according to his humanity as a common carpenter, that therefore he could not be the promised Davidic Messiah, and certainly not the creator God in the flesh. We also saw last week that that there are many diverse motives for rejecting Christ and the gospel. Why do people not believe? Well, some do not believe for intellectual reasons. Some are theological reasons. But more often than not, these are used to cloak personal reasons like envy, jealousy, pettiness, and pride. Uh, You get into a conversation with someone about the Christian faith, and often they are going to start asking you theology questions when really they just don't want to break up with their boyfriend. They're they're, uh, distracting you with a theological argument, and really they just don't want to submit to Christ. That is the issue, and that was one of the issues for the Nazarenes. While these sins, these sins like pride and jealousy and being petty, holding a grudge, those kinds of sins might seem relatively small or minor to us. They're they're venial sins. Uh, Jesus says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city that rejects him. Mark 6, 11. So what we often deem as minor sins, that uh, nursing a grudge, that sinful judgment about someone else, can actually become the cause of far more serious sins, like rejecting God and his offer of salvation when he shows up in the flesh to your town. The slope of unbelief is very slippery and deceptive, and this is the sin of the people of Nazareth, and this is a sin that continues unto this day. However, by now, we should know that Jesus is used to rejection. Jesus is no stranger to opposition, but that does not remove the sorrow in his heart over the people's unbelief. 
And while most of us would be tempted to despair or cry or be discouraged because our family or friends reject us, Jesus continues to minister undeterred. As Isaiah 50 also says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Jesus, like the prophet Isaiah, for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame of the people who rejected him. Jesus despised the shame of those who wanted to distance themselves from his movement, that Jesus seems like a good guy, but he's a little extreme for my taste. This absolutely fixed determination of Jesus to do the Father's will, come what may, is what Jesus wants all of his disciples to learn as well. Following uh, Jesus, doing the Father's will, absolutely is the threshold for faithful Christian living. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for uh, those extreme radical Christians. This is the basic command to all who would follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so Mark has written this chapter in such a way as to really teach us this lesson from Jesus, that no man, no woman can serve God faithfully if they also desire the approval of others. Just as you cannot serve God and money, you cannot serve God and seek the approval of other people. Listen to what John 12 says about the people who attempted to split the difference. It says this, uh, many even of the authorities, this is the religious authorities, believed in Jesus. They believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be excommunicated from the, the synagogue. Verse 43, why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's people who believe, but they won't confess it. They're shamed by the culture. They're shamed by, from being ostracized by their social community. And it's because they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. The, te the test of a true Christian then is to answer the question, who do you want glory from? Whose approval do you most desire? Is it God or is it man? How you answer that question will determine, as Jesus says, your fitness for the kingdom of heaven. And so to help us aspire to this, this is something that all of us struggle with. All of us, none of us wants to be rejected. None of us wants to be disapproved of. So how do you develop the courage to actually stand firm, speak the truth in love when everyone else is calling you a hater and a crazy person? Well, Mark gives us now the story of John the Baptist to steal our spines for the truth. And you'll notice, it's kind of interesting how Mark places this story in his gospel because we just saw Jesus has sent forth the 12 disciples to go minister 
And then he inserts this, this flashback about John the Baptist. And then in verse 30, you're going to have the disciples return. So this is uh, kind of the little sandwich story that Mark gives us. And I think it, you could think of this as kind of like a coach's pep talk for the disciples before they go out onto the field. Hey, you know you're going to go to all these villages and preach, and some of them are going to reject you. And you're going to dust off uh, your sandals. It's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to give you the example of John the Baptist. Remember him. Remember him. Because the takeaway that Jesus wants them uh, to get from the John the Baptist story is that uh, sometimes the reward for obeying God is that you get your head chopped off. Sometimes the reward for doing exactly what God commands to do is that you are imprisoned and put to death. And this really is uh, kind of the opposite of how most people think about the Christian, Christian life. Uh, we think that obedience leads to blessing, which is exactly true. That is exactly right. But what we miss and often overlook is that God's blessings sometimes come to us disguised as curses. God's blessings sometimes come to us disguised as curses. Right? You take the example of Job or take the example of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a great preacher. He's a great minister. He's leading a revival. The people recognize him as a prophet, but now he's locked up for confronting the authorities and he's sitting in prison. And to him, that might not seem like effective, fruitful ministry. He can't preach. He can't, uh, you know, blog. He can't baptize. He can't point people to Jesus. He's just sitting there in chains. And yet, this imprisonment and his subsequent beheading are going to be written down by the apostles and proclaimed unto the end of the world in every nation under heaven. And the testimony of John's faith is sealed in blood. And that testimony is going to resound off into eternity. We are looking at at it right now, this morning. John was counted worthy to suffer for the name. And that cursed death that he endured was the reward of his faithfulness. Do you have that category? That the reward for your obedience could be that you suddenly get cancer. <laughs> right? All right, you've graduated to a more difficult trial. A trial in which you're going to have to be preparing your body for heaven, right? There's nothing here uh, to please you. Uh, food is nothing. The sound of music is nothing. There's nothing that can please your senses. Well, God is weaning you for eternity, right? That, that is the reward that God gives often to the faithful. So with, uh, with this in mind, let us turn now uh, to walk through our text here, starting in verse 14. It says, and King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works to show forth themselves in him. Uh, notice first that Mark calls Herod King Herod. And there are a bunch of Herods in the Bible. This is a different Herod than the one that tried uh, to kill Jesus as an infant. That was Herod Archelaus. This one is Herod Antipas, and he was the tetrarch of 
Galilee. And you can think of a tetrarch as kind of a, a governor of a, of a specific region. So remember the political situation. Rome is the imperial power. And then because it's sometimes better to rule a people by someone that's kind of one of their own, uh, it made sense for them to have the Herods kind of adjudicate some things amongst the locals. So they don't have Rome directly ruling them like they have in Jerusalem. Over in Galilee and Perea, so Jesus is ministering uh, north in Galilee, and that's kind of King Herod's tetrarchy uh, ruling region. So Herod is this kind of local governor, and he uh, reigns over the regions of Galilee and Perea, but he's not the ultimate authority. He's not actually even a king. This is the ironic thing about Mark calling him King Herod. Uh, Herod never held this title, and it was actually him going to Caesar at the goading of his wife to ask for this title that gets him and Herodias banished from the kingdom. So uh, we don't have this story in scripture, but uh, the Jewish historian Josephus records uh, this in great detail. So uh, we're only getting the first half of the Herod Herodias story. And then in AD 39, uh, I take Mark's gospel as written in AD 40. So uh, just before Mark's gospel is written in AD 39, Herod Antipas is gonna go to Rome. He's gonna ask, for to, he's gonna ask to become king of the Jews like his, his grandfather was. And Caesar's gonna see this as a claim for power and he's gonna banish him and Herodias and it's not gonna go well for them after that. So there's all sorts of interesting things going on for Mark calling him King Herod because he wasn't actually a king and that's actually what got him uh, removed from office. Now, if you were someone living in Capernaum or Galilee, for all intents and purposes, Herod very much act and lived like a king. And beyond the irony of him being uh, deposed for aspiring to that royal title, Mark also calls Herod King Herod because he wants to set up a contrast between two different kinds of kings or two different visions of kingship. Mark wants us to compare King Herod with King Jesus. And therefore, the rest of this chapter, chapter 6, is kind of a commentary on what a true king or true shepherd like David, David is the original shepherd king, what does a true shepherd, a true king look like compared to a false shepherd or a false king in Herod? So that's the contrast Mark is wanting to draw our attention to here. Uh, we'll see next week that Jesus is going to say in verse uh, 34 of Mark that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. That's a kingly image. It's something that Ezekiel talks about. Uh, does that king feed the sheep or does he devour them? Well, Jesus, we're going to see, multiplies and divides loaves and fishes. We're going to see the feeding of the 5,000 next. And that's meant to stand in contrast with the food that Herod is serving. What is the food that Herod is serving? As the title of our sermon is, it's going to be a prophet on a platter. So you can divide loaves and fishes, feed the sheep, or you can do what Herod does and serve prophets to your guests. So King, uh, uh, so King Herod has heard of Jesus, and he thinks that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And again, if you think about this, there are layers of irony here too. Because in Jesus, John really will one day literally rise from the dead. But in the meantime, John, who is Elijah, and Jesus, who is Elisha, Jesus is the one who comes with a double portion of that same spirit. So Jesus is, in a certain sense, John resurrected, just like Elisha was Elijah 
resurrected. He's got more power than Elijah did. He's got more power than John did. Jesus comes as a, res- as a resurrected John performing miracles all over the place. All right, so that's just some of the contextual setup here. And then in verses 15 to 16, we hear what people are speculating about Jesus' identity. So who, who is this? What is uh, the word on the street about this Jesus? Verses 15 to 16, others said that it is Elias, that's Elijah, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets, perhaps he's Jeremiah, perhaps he's Enoch returned. But when Herod heard thereof, verse 16, but when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Herod appears here haunted by the execution of John. And perhaps in his mind, Jesus is a kind of divine vengeance for John's murder. The ghost of John is haunting him. And then in verse 17, we get filled in with this flashback from Mark. So this is how John's execution went down. So here now we flash back to the time when John is executed. Verses 17 to 20. It says, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and in holy and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod is a man divided. He has married his niece, Herodias, who is also the wife of his half-brother, Philip. And so there are multiple violations of God's law in this marriage between Herod and Herodias. Leviticus 18, 16 says, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. Leviticus 20, 21 says, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. Herodias had already had a daughter together with her first husband, Philip. And so for her to divorce him and then marry Herod Antipas was a double scandal to the Jews. John the Baptist therefore confronted Herod about this unlawful marriage. And ever since then, Herodias had wanted to kill John. You can see in Herodias this very insecure and fearful woman that she's uh, you know, left uh, Herod Philip She's now attached herself to Herod Antipas. And if Herod listens to John, well, where's that going to leave her? She's kind of kicked out. She's stuck. So you can imagine why Herodias wanted to kill John. This should remind us of the various scenes in 1 Kings where King Ahab is controlled by his wicked wife Jezebel and uses her husband's power to get what she wants. So you remember in 1 Kings 18 and 19, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and then when they lose, he slaughters all of them. And as soon as Jezebel hears of this, she puts out a hit on Elijah. So Elijah has to flee. He has this great victory, but then he has to flee because Jezebel's trying to kill him. Naboth, we also see the story of Naboth's vineyard. Uh, Naboth has a vineyard that is right next to uh, Ahab's property, and Ahab desires it. He's really sad that he can't have Naboth's vineyard, and Jezebel says, "Uh, hey, you're the king. You can get that if you want. And so she sets up false witnesses to accuse Naboth and have Naboth murdered. 
So there are many parallels between Ahab and Herod, Jezebel and Herodias, Elijah and John the Baptist. And Mark is trying to draw uh, our attention to this. Uh, If you remember how Jezebel dies, she is thrown out of a window and eaten by dogs. And when they go to bury Jezebel, it says this, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. So Jezebel has her head severed from her body. And just as Jesus is John risen from the dead, Herodias is a sort of resurrected Jezebel. She now seeks the head of John the Baptist. We should also note here that it belongs to the prophet to confront kings when they deviate from God's law. It did not matter to John that Rome claimed supremacy. It did not matter that King Herod was not a professing believer. According to the law of God, as set forth in Leviticus 18 and 20, it was unlawful by God's law for Herod to have his brother's wife. And John calls him out on it. He confronts him. This prophetic ministry now belongs to the Christian church, and therefore the job of preachers is not only to feed the people of God, that is our first task, but also to confront the lawlessness that happens in Washington, D.C., in Olympia, or wherever the city council meets. The church is Christ's mouthpiece. We are the prophetic witness to tell the powers that be what is lawful and what is not. And it does not matter what they esteem as a law if it is contrary to God's law. It does not matter if the president or governor or mayor is not a Christian. The moral law of God is forever binding on all men. And if they deviate from it, we have the authority, responsibility even, given to us by God to tell them, you may not have your brother's wife. You may not allow abortions in this state. You may not allow transgender surgeries in Washington. You may not allow same-sex mirage to exist. You may not draft our daughters into the military. And on and on I could go. These people who desire to corrupt your children and spread perversity need to be punished. They need to be locked up. Many of them need to be executed, not elected to public office. This is the prophetic ministry of the church. And if we start to preach like John the Baptist, if we start to talk like John, well, then we should not be surprised when they, like Herodias, want to kill us. The fact that we have so many women like Herodias and Jezebel in government is not a sign of great progress. It is a sign of God's judgment. Isaiah 3.12 says this, As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. If you go to vote and your options are Herod, Herodias, Jezebel, or Deborah, of course you should choose righteous Deborah. But as you vote for her, remember that this is is not how it is supposed to be, right? You're living at that point in the time of judges. Um, I recently, uh, I'm in Thurston County right now, so I voted for whatever the, the Thurston County election is, and my options for one of them was like, Three ladies, one of them's a Unitarian Universalist lady, and then uh, an elderly gentleman. And you look at, you, you read the bios on these candidates, and you think, ah, you know, <laughs> I didn't vote for the Unitarian Universalist lady. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. 
When, when, God ordained, when God ordained the government of Israel in Exodus 18, this was the standard for being a ruler. God says this, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all seasons. So you see here, there are just four very basic qualifications for a godly ruler. You must be an able man, that is, you must be able, competent to actually rule. Second, you must fear God. Third, you must be, again, a man of truth. And then fourth, you must hate covetousness. You must hate a bribe. We ask ourselves, where are these men today? How many of our senators and representatives meet this very basic criteria? Not many. If Christ is king of the world, as he is, then that means he is king of Centralia. Jesus is Lord of Chehalis. Jesus is the ruler of Washington State and these United States. And Psalm 2 issues a warning to all human governments that we must constantly put in their ears. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves to the Lord. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The blessing of God will not come to our nation until we, as a nation, put our trust in him. In the meantime, we can either lock up and behead preachers of God's truth, as some of them are doing over our northern border, or we can amplify their voice and repent at their preaching. So we say to these United States, which way? Western man. In verses uh, 21 to 23, we then see Herodias' wicked scheme play out. It says, And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced, and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Uh, commentators speculate, but this was uh, almost certainly a very lewd dance from a teenage girl. And if you were to read about what took place in Herodian courts, uh, this is not surprising activity as, uh, at all. Uh, there, were, there was all kinds of incest and perversity uh, in the Herodian courts, and it's part of what makes trying to figure out who's who in these scenes very complicated. Herod had, the first Herod had like 10 wives, and then he has all sorts of kids, and then they intermarry, and then intermarry, it, it's, it's a, quite an incestuous situation. And this kind of scene just fits right in with everything else we know about the Herodian court. So this uh, dancing damsel, you think about uh, the language here, this dancing damsel stands in contrast to another damsel that we just read about back in chapter 5. Remember the story about daughter Zion. So we saw there Jairus' daughter, this 12-year-old girl who was at the point of death, and we said that Jairus' daughter signifies the death and resurrection of Jerusalem, daughter Zion. And here we have another picture of how corrupt Jerusalem, daughter Zion, has become. 
here is an actually royal princess. That's who she is. Here's a royal princess, and she is dancing and debasing herself for the pleasure of men. This is exactly how God describes Jerusalem in the prophets. We see this in Jeremiah. We see this in Ezekiel and elsewhere. Who is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is a daughter that God has made into royalty, but who then debases herself with fornication and murder. Ezekiel 16, 15 says, But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Jeremiah eleven fifteen and 27 says, Likewise, What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee? When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. I have seen thine adulteries and thy neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills in the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? So here Mark gives us another angle on this theme of Jerusalem as God's daughter that has since become corrupt. And just as Jerusalem is the city that murders and devours the prophets, so also this damsel will be the cause of John's murder and their devouring of him. So Herod offers the girl whatever she wants, up to half the kingdom. And now we get her request, verses 24 to 29. It says, and she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, and a charger here is just a platter or a serving dish, the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. What is the dish that the wicked desire to eat? It is the flesh of God's prophets. You see the language here of giving, uh, at first it's, it's broken and then it's given to the damsel and then the damsel gives it to her mother. This is sacramental language that is just like the Lord's Supper. Jesus breaks, then he gives, and then they hand it off. And you have this same sacramental language in the Herodian court. The head, there's a death, <laughs> right? Just like we proclaim the death of Christ and then they're splitting it up amongst themselves. The damsel gave it to her mother. So Herodias' daughter is no innocent young girl, just doing what her mother says against her will. This is a corrupt daughter who has embraced her mother's murderous intents and even embellishes them. Notice, it is the girl who adds to the request, I want his head on a platter immediately. She, like her mother, knows that Herod is a double-minded man. Herod fears John and respects him as a holy man. And therefore, John's imprisonment is a compromise to try to keep John alive and his wife at bay. And so uh, Herodias and her daughter look for and press upon Herod's great weakness. What is Herod's weakness? Well, it is his desire for approval, his desire, his vanity to keep up the appearances of a king. 
The text says, And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. What did Herod want more than to keep John alive? He wanted to keep his reputation as king intact. Herod knew that murdering John was morally wrong. He also knew that it was bad public policy. It could incite rebellion in Galilee and endanger his ability to rule. He had a bad conscience about the whole thing. And yet, feeling bad about sin is not the same thing as repentance. Feeling bad about your sin is not the same thing as repentance. At this point, think of the girl's request. At this point, Herod still had a way out. He could have given half of her kingdom instead. He could have broken his oath as an unlawful oath. We know he had no problem breaking marriage oaths. And so Herod, instead of dividing his kingdom, divides the head from the body of John the Baptist. He caves to the pressure of his wife and this girl and the people who are watching. You have in this scene then this kind of great inversion of something that happened in Solomon's court. Uh, You remember the scene where two women come in with competing claims to be the baby's mother. Solomon threatens to cut the baby in half, and the true mother, out of her love for her child, pleads for the baby's life. Give it to the other woman. I, I just want the baby to live. And this is how Solomon discerns true mother from false mother. Well, King Herod, of course, has no such discernment. And rather than judging righteously between two women, here two women exercise authority and judgment over him. This is the kind of king that King Herod is. He is weak-willed, he is compromised, he is double-minded. He has no principles except to try to appear to be a king. He is controlled by women and controlled by what they think. In contrast to Herod, you have the examples then of John and of Jesus. John and Jesus preach the truth and care only, only for the approval of God. They could care less what people think of their sermons. What gives a man courage to confront kings and authorities and those who could do us great harm is an absolute trust that God is on our side, that the Father is pleased with us, and it is his good pleasure alone that we desire. I'll close with this. If we want to become a faithful and honest church where truth and love abound, then at times we're going to have to be a little bit brave we are going to have to first confront the wickedness and perversity in ourselves. We are going to have to repent and put to death that little Herod, that bitter Herodias that dwells in our flesh. Our envy, our lust for power, for money, for reputation, the hankering for other people's approval must die in us if we want courage to stand. The true prophet, the true prophet, is willing to lose his head for Christ. He would regard that as a reward, to decrease that Jesus might increase. The true king is willing to lay down his life for the sheep, not sacrifice them to stay in power. The true king faces down the wolves to protect those who are his. And so take John and take Jesus as your examples of what it means to be a true disciple, a true Christian. The path that Jesus is taking us on, all of us, if you will follow him, is a path that is going to lead through the valley of the shadow of death. 
That's where the good shepherd leaves. The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, you will be led through the valley of the shadow of death. But if you trust him, even unto death, then you will find on the other side green pastures, still waters, beautiful and pleasant places that will restore your soul. So trust the good shepherd. Trust the true king, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for giving us John's example, this man who uh, ate locusts and wild honey and was dressed in rough clothing, who regarded none of the pleasures of this world who had his life cut short in his 30s, beheaded because of a dancing girl. Oh, that we could be as holy as John. God, give us courage to stand in the face of great uh, pomp and decadence and wickedness in our day. Father, forgive us for our fear of man. Forgive us for fearing what other people are going to say or think about us because we defend the truth and make us to be valiant for your truth on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.